Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. I am Bree, and today I am joined by someone we're so excited to finally have here, author Frederick Smith, a journalist, academic, advocate, author. Welcome, Frederick. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited. Uh, My name is Frederick Smith. I use he, him pronouns. And um, by day, I work in higher education, student affairs um, at San Francisco State University. And by night, I am an author of LGBTQ uh, romance novels. I'm primarily focusing on like Black and Latinx queer characters um, and set in Los Angeles. Um, outside of like that work, I, I used to work in um, journalism for a year or so right after undergraduate. Um, and I think I have the same kind of interest as everyone else who listens. I read a lot. I try to fit in some writing time. Um, I'm originally from Detroit and I, you know, I could go on and on and on talking about random stuff about me. Yeah. Okay. I have to find out like, okay, Detroit to like where to San, you said San Francisco, right? Correct. Okay, because I I read Bay Area on your website, and I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm moving to California, so <laughs> I want to be sure. Oh, okay. Tell me about the culture. Was it a culture shock? How did you end up there? Because that's far from Detroit. Oh, it's a long way. But you know, <laughs> I was one of those um, I was one of those um kids who grew up counting the falls and the winters, so I was going to get out of Detroit. Okay. So, okay. Um, as soon as I finished high school, I went away to undergrad at University of Missouri. Right. And, I saw that too. Yes, Columbia? Missouri. Yeah, Missouri, Columbia. Um, yeah, that's like an hour from where I'm from. That's like an hour from yeah, my hometown. Yeah. And so, I, you know, I went there for the journalism school. At the time, they were the number one. They still may be number one journalism school in the country. And so I studied there and then made a closer stint back to the Midwest. I went to um, Chicago for a couple years to go to grad school at uh, Loyola in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And then when that whole time was done, um, that's when I made the venture west. But I started out in Los Angeles first. And um, I was in Los Angeles for like 12, 15 years or so um, before making the move for a professional move to San Francisco. Um, but all the moves that I've done have been primarily for either school or to work out of school. And okay. um, so, yeah, so that, that's kind of my journey west. Okay. Okay. First off. Yes. What did you think when you got to Missouri, coming from Detroit oh. to ah. Columbia? <laughs> you know what? Missouri is physically beautiful. There's lots of farms and wonderful, nice, kind people there. Um, it was culture shock for me, though, coming from Detroit. And it was my first time coming into contact with so much, um, you know, a, a, a majority white like culture and yeah. place. Because, you know, growing up in Detroit, it's 80, 90% black. And um, all of my teachers, all of my doctors, post office, delivery people, everything were black. And so that was my world. And so it was really a culture shock when I, um, when I, when I moved to Missouri, um, as an 18 year old undergrad, it's, it's something I wouldn't recommend in the future. I wish I had gone to an HBCU for undergrad, a historically black college and university for undergrad. But, you know, that's hindsight. That's a lesson learned. If I ever have a family, that is definitely something that I will promote as a value to my own kids is, uh, you know, considering an HBCU for their undergrad career. Do you remember like that moment where you were like, I'm not in Kansas anymore? Like, what the hell? <laughs> Well, I was literally just a hop, skip, and away from Kansas, and I haven't <laughs> you were- <laughs> Kansas City. However, 
Oh, this is going to be so funny. It's so terrible. I look back at the memory now and I should actually write something about this. The first time I tried to go get a haircut. Oh, God. And I, and I went to the, you know, and and for, for, the, for the people who are listening to this, I'm African-American, I'm black and, you know, black hair, black people, things like mm-hmm. that. And I went to the campus haircut place trying to get a haircut like I would get in Detroit and it was a disaster. Oh my for, gosh, I bet. <laughs> for, the, for, her, for the barber and for myself. And I'm like, oh, this will be a funny story to write or to tell one day. Um, but it's just one of those naive things, you know, me being from Detroit. You didn't know. I didn't know. The poor hair, the poor haircut person did not know either. We're just both sitting there not knowing. And, and you know, that that that, that just speaks to the ways in which we just don't know about a lot about each other, but I think things are changing a lot now, especially, you know, with with more people developing cultural competency, interest in people who are not like them, and then you know also with with the the increased number of mixed race people in the U.S., I think there's definitely a lot more um, understanding, empathy, and willingness to learn um, and adapt um, today than there were than it was back when I was an undergrad. Yeah, I think, I mean, gosh, I haven't lived in Missouri now since I was a kid. I was thinking that the other day. I was like, I've been, I went home twice in 2022. Okay. And that was the most I had been home like that in a long time. And both times that I went, I was like, man, Missouri kind of feels like it's stuck back in time. Like the the, mm-hmm. the parts that I'm from, like I'm from Sedalia. So like an oh, hour-ish from, hell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, really close to Columbia. I mean, my dad lives in in Kansas City and it's great, you know, um, but, you know, like just driving through, there are still towns where I'm not going to stop here for gas. Like, I think people don't realize, like, as a person of color, there are still places in the country where we're not going to go or you can't just go and get a haircut or go have someone wash your hair and know what to do. You know, like that is still a very real thing. <laughs> very real. And, um, you know, the, 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 um, I, I need to go back to Missouri one day, you know, for many years, you know, after I left, um, well, you know, let me say this. I have not been back for many years for many personal reasons. Um, some of which were illuminated when the football players went on strike there back in like, mm. 2015. You know, the whole, um, yes. some of the racial justice issues that were happening on the campus and everything. And yes. So were here, you there then or no? You know, I was not there then, but when those football players then initiated, you know, the rest of Black students to kind of, you know, it was awful. power yeah. there, um, I was like, wow, things haven't, Things have changed and things have not changed. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think that's life everywhere. And so, you know, I haven't been back, but but at some point I need to go back to Mizzou because it's, a, you know, it's a part of my um, world and life and history. And it's not something that I can forget or just erase from my yeah. life. So one day I'll go back. But I have an aunt who lives in Kansas City who I love dearly. And um, she lives on the Kansas City Kansas side, I think. Okay. Okay. <laughs> or something like that. So anyway. And you said like at the time it was like the number one school for journalism. So that's like a really awesome thing. Like how, like how did you feel getting into it? (laughs) Absolutely. You know what? I loved the program, the journalism school program at Mizzou. Um, It taught me a lot just in terms of, you know, how to be a good, um, you know, how how to be a good reporter, how to be a good on-air person, how to write well, um, how to ask questions that will elicit information, um, how to do research, um, how to understand and learn technology. Um, It it, it was a great 
um, training ground for me. And I'm forever grateful for the education I got at, at the Mizzou School of Journalism. And, um, you know, and I think that it also feeds into a lot of my personal interests now. You know, at the time, when I finished school, or when I started journalism school, you know, I went because I thought I wanted to be like the next, like, Oprah, the next. Okay, I was wondering. I'm like, what look? Let, what led us on this path of journalism? Like, <laughs> oh, it, it was definitely growing up watching people like Oprah, Gail King. And, yes. Okay. You know, great, great, great TV people like that. Um, I still want to be Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But no, <laughs> no, but, but, you know, after a year of doing the on air work, I realized that it wasn't my cup of tea, so to speak. Um, the types of stories that I was getting assigned were not the type of stories that, that were fitting with like my spirit and my soul and, and, and what I thought was advancing life. Like I got assigned a lot of crime stories, child abuse stories, um, and things like that. And, you know, like when I, think a lot about my purpose in life and what's important to me. Um, you know, it, it's about enlightening people and learning and about helping people get to their next stage in life, um, which is what I hope I do in both my writing and in the work I do in higher education. And so, um, you know, after about a year, I was like, I can't do this anymore. I went and talked to one of my mentors back at Missouri, who was one of my supervisors when I was an RA. And um, he was like, uh, his name is Dean Anderson. And he was like, you know what, Fred, you were involved as an undergrad, as a tour guide leader. You did student government. You know, you did all these creative writing things. Um, you know, you, you you were like a very active student. You're like the kind of student that people who work at universities want. Have you thought about going to this as a profession? And, you know, growing up, you never think you can work at a school other than being a teacher. You don't realize there's a whole out-of-class experience um, that students experience until you're in it. So I was like, I didn't know I could do this. So that's how I ended up in grad school at Chicago, um, you know, studying a field called student affairs, higher education. And then that, you know, again, like I shared earlier, that's what took me to Los Angeles for my, for a professional position at Cal State LA. Um, and the funny thing is I went to Cal State LA, not only for the professional position, um, where I ended up being the director of the cross-cultural centers there eventually. But I went to L.A. because I wanted to write for television. You know, I grew up watching Young and the Restless and Bold and the Beautiful. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> and so this is how it parlayed into writing fiction. So, you know, I go to L.A., you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this job at Cal State L.A. I do it well. I can produce some great events. You know, I brought a lot of speakers, films, panels, musicians, and things like that to the campus. But I, And while I was getting connected with a lot of those artists, you know, I was thinking, okay, I got to figure out how I'm going to get get on The Young and the Restless. How am I going to get to that writing team of Bold and the Beautiful? And so I ended up taking some um, writing classes across town at the UCLA Extension Program. And you are always in somebody's class, okay? Like, yeah, you've I, been doing a lot of school. I'm a lifelong student, and um, I, I just love school. I and actually, if you ask me about ask my parents, ask my family. My parents are no longer with us, but if you ask my family, they're like, "Oh, you you've been reading since you were like two or three years oh, old." Oh, yeah. But anyway, um, I ended up taking some classes at the UCLA Extension Program for um, creative writing. Because I always follow this mantra of, you know, if you want to do something in life, you have to be around the kind of people who are doing what you want to do. And so um, start taking some creative writing classes with um, an instructor named Carrie Madden, and she writes children's books. She's based in Los Angeles and in Tennessee right now, um, both places. Took her class, started writing these short stories about 
my lived experience as a black gay person in Los Angeles. Um, and actually, I think the first chapter of my first novel, which is called Down for Whatever, uh, Carrie Madden was a wonderful instructor, um, loved my work about, you know, my, my writing about black and Latinx gay people in Los Angeles. And um, she was like, have you ever thought about maybe turning this into something longer? And I was like, mm, not really, but do you think? And she's like, oh, you've got potential. And so I ended up, you know, um, workshopping or writing a chapter for each week's class that would eventually become what was my first novel, Down for Whatever. Oh, my gosh. And um, that novel is about four friends. So, so, so kind of think about waiting to exhale formula, four friends looking for love in all the wrong places. But imagine them being Black or Latinx living in LA, being in their 20s and 30s, and just all the the fun mistakes that people make in their 20s and 30s when they're, you know, looking for Mr., Ms., Mix Right, or whatever. And so um, after the class was over, uh, Carrie Madden invited me to join her writer's group. Oh my gosh. No way. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I I can't remember everyone who was in the group, but I think there was someone in the group who, um, who, who actually wrote a novel that was an Oprah pick. And I'm like, why am I in this group? You know, we're black boys from Detroit and all these kind of middle-aged white women, but they were so cool and so kind. And they were very open and welcoming to my work. And they invited me in and, you know, they would workshop, you know, my chapters for down for whatever um, and everything. But the the story and the journey to publishing came because um, there was a person in that group named Denise Hamilton. Denise Hamilton is a mystery writer um, set in L.A. who used to write for the Los Angeles Times, but her mystery novels are set all around the L.A. area. And um, one of her novels was, um, you know how it goes from the the transition from hardback to softcover. So she was celebrating the release of her, one of her novels turning into softcover. She was at a party in New York City with her publisher. And somehow, I don't know how, why, who, she started talking about me at this party. And she started talking about me being in the writer's group, started talking about, you know, my my little pages. I was workshopping with them about these Black and Latinx gay characters in LA. And um, someone overheard her who ended up uh, contacting me. His name was John Sconamelio. He uh, was a senior editor or editor-in-chief at Kensington Books. Um, and he, after he heard about me, he emailed me that Monday. Oh I'll never my god! It. it was like that Monday after President's Day weekend back in like 2005, 2000, I think it was 2005. And emailed me and said, hey, I heard about you from Denise Hamilton. Would you mind sending me um, your finished novel so I can take a look at it? And so, you know, that was back in the days when it wasn't all on email. You had to physically print the pages and send them to New York and everything. So I send this 300-page manuscript to him. And probably within two weeks, you know, it skipped the slush pile and made it to him. And um, he emailed, called me, and said, we'd like to have you on for a couple of books with Kensington Books. Oh, my like, gosh. Wow. Oh my- so talk about, you know, well, one, I, I think about luck. But I also think about, you know, the power of at least believing in yourself, the power of when you're nice to people, you never know when people are going to, when and how and who are going to say things about you. And so, you know, I always think it just pays to be kind and nice to people and not a pain. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. I believe that. Talking about me at this party, 
I never would be in publishing and writing today. So, you know, I did two books for Kensington, um, Down for Whatever was my first novel. Again, The Four Best Friends in LA, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. And then my second novel with Kensington um, is called Right Side of the Wrong Bed. And um, it's a total opposites attract, different in life, all kinds of ways. Why are they together? They should not be together. All their friends say it wouldn't last. I kind of joke and call it like the Bobby and Whitney syndrome. Like all, everyone around sees the problems except for the two people in Except it. them. <laughs> it was so romantic and so cute seeing this mismatched couple try to make it work. And, you know, through all the stops and starts and the ups and downs and everything. And, um, you know, that novel got nominated for a Lambda Literary Award in the romance category in, um, it was either 2008 or 2009. I can't remember the exact year. I think I would have won if I had known at the time that while I was writing a romance, I did not know the formula for romance and especially that whole happily ever after and happy for now part of okay, the formula. Okay, okay. If I had known that, I would have... I'm pretty sure I would have won that year. But I I, I love that novel. And, you know, I, I would suggest if anyone wants to start reading anything by me, my first two novels, Down for Whatever, Right Side of the Wrong Bed with Kensington, you know, were great. And so, so like my, you, yeah, I want to pause you and ask you, like, so take us, because you've been reading for forever. What did you grow up reading? Like, what were your influences to where when you were in that moment and you were you started writing, like, down for whatever came to you. I mean, obviously like you're in LA and you're around all these wonderful people and it's like, I'm writing what I see and, you know, parts of my experiences or whatever, like, where did it come from? Like, tell us where it came from. Like, what had you been reading? So, you know, like I shared, I've I've been reading since I was two, three years old or so Mm -hmm. my family says, but I also had the knack or the interest in creative writing when I was in elementary school in Detroit public schools. And so I would enter writing contests. I would Mm -hmm. write cheesy, bad poetry. I still have some of the- I love cheesy, bad poetry. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I still have some of the anthologies. At the time, Detroit Public Schools used to put together anthologies um, to uh, foster creativity and kids there. And so, um, you know, I I, I would enter short stories and poetry and things like that. Some of it so cheesy and so bad when I look at my third and fourth grade self. However, um, it's um, wonderful think about the memories and everything. So, um, you know, I've been creative writing since, you know, elementary school, did school newspaper in high school, continue with some of my creative writing in um, creative, continue with some of my creative writing in um, high school and grad school and things like that. And so, yeah, it's totally been since childhood that, you know, I had this knack for writing and for journalism and things like that. So, Um, That's kind of where it came from. But, you know, as an adult, I think even though I had pursued this career in higher education and student affairs, I've always kept my creative knack, my creativity, you know, whether it's like producing events, being connected to arts communities, writing communities. Um, You know, I've I've always had that that pull, um, you know, in my life. And I still feel it to this day in terms of, you know, I love and I'm passionate about like doing um, diversity, inclusion, 
work for universities and events and things like that. And I'm still equally passionate about writing and creative writing. Um, I just wish there was enough time in the day so I could do both to 150% like Virgo me wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I remember when I was reading your website you, and you mentioned um, Carrie Madden on, on your website, you said that she noticed something in your stories, like you had given a distinct voice to each of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I find that so admirable. Like as somebody who wants to write, I think that's the part that I struggle with the mo- the most. Um, just because I'm like, I've been a stay-at-home mom since like 2019. Before that, I was in the military. And I'm just like, I don't really know what my voice is. So mm-hmm. like, can you talk a little bit to that, like to anybody struggling to figure out their voice? Yeah, that is a great question. And it's something even today that I struggle with. Um, so like for for me, and I, I know like people go back and forth with this. I love first person novels. And I think I've heard you all talk about it on 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 the podcast before, and I've heard it on other podcasts. You know, this this debate between first person and third person in terms of writing. And, um, you know, what I'm currently working on right now is third person and I'm struggling. And I think it's because I'm more comfortable writing in first person. I feel like that's where the voice comes from because you are, I am writing from the perspective of the person telling the story. And so in first person, you know, I feel like I have a, a, a strong mastery of the character's voice or the character's voices in first person and can be a lot more creative around what they would say, do, be, um, how they would interact with other characters, etc. how they would look at love and romance. What I'm currently working on now is in third person. And I'm doing it because, you know, and I probably shouldn't listen to people. That's what I'd say to any aspiring authors, listen to your own voice and what you're comfortable with. Um, I started listening and watching some some threads on first person, third person. And, you know, hearing some people say, well, I only like novels that are written in third person because da, 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 da. It's detached and, you know, it's da, da, da. And um, so I was like, okay, let me try this third person, you know. Oh, kind gosh. Of for, for a professional <laughs> challenge, yeah. for a writing challenge. And I was going to tell you, I am struggling with this project. And it's, I have to get it turned in by July this year, July 2023. And so I think I may go back and revise it and and and, and turn it back into first person because that's where I feel most comfortable. And so this kind of fits in with the kind of reading that I used to do when I was growing up. You know, I used to sneak into my mom's um, bookshelves, like I think many of us do. And I've heard on your podcast and heard on other podcasts before. <clears throat> I, and I, I used to sneak in. I remember the first book I snuck and read was like this... Um, it was called Scruples. I think it's Judith Krantz. I'm not sure. And I shouldn't have been reading that as a kid. I, I, I earmarked and bookmarked the, the the parts I wasn't supposed to read, being a curious little, um, you know. Yeah, teenager. like we're going to reread this. <laughs> and you know what parts I'm talking about, too. Yes. But um, but then later, you know, with that big boom of um, Black authors in the 90s after Terry McMillan, you know, kind of, you know, busted down a lot of doors for a lot of Black writers to follow in her coattails. So like Terry McMillan's like one of the first who I read and, you know, most of her novels are written in first person. And that's where I modeled my down for whatever from. I'm like, 
I like this. I, I like I like where I'm hearing the person tell me their story instead of some anonymous person telling someone else's story. And so Terry McMillan's novels really resonated with me. Elin Harris is another person who I grew up reading and listening, uh, listening to um, and, and and reading um, his novels, novels that are focused on Black and queer characters in the U.S. South. Um, an author named Pearl Clegg, who is, um, you know, and uh, although they are not romance novelists per se, they do have elements of romance in all of their novels. Um, Pearl Clegg is an author set in Atlanta, and I just absolutely love everything she writes, whether it's first person or third person. Um, just, just the way with words, nice short chapters, um, nice cliffhangers at the end of each chapter. Um, so those are some of the people who I grew up reading and who were kind of my literary role models, even though I, I never really met any of them. I might, I might have gone to a few events. And actually, I did get to meet Pearl Clegg once. I got to bring her to Cal State LA. And that was like a dream come true. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, such a dream come true. And so, yeah, those are some of the people who I, you know, um, grew up reading and things like that. But my transition into, you know, romance novels really came during the pandemic, um, starting around three years ago. And that was when, you know, all of the events went 100% virtual and all the bookstores were offering events with authors all over the country that I could just watch from the comfort of my apartment and my laptop. And so that's when I discovered so many authors that I hadn't even known about because I could go to all these free events. And so, you know, people like Rebecca Weatherspoon, you know, Fiona Zed. And then, you know, I got into, you know, some of the novels of, um, oh, I'm going to blank on all the names off. Oh, from New Orleans, uh, Farrah. Farrah. Farrah Sean. Farrah Roshan, but there's another Farrah too. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, like right now too. And then um, Jasmine Guillory and oh, um, just all these authors who were doing these great, Alyssa Cole. And so um, that really opened up my eyes, one, more to the genre of romance and to the great work that romance novelists are doing, and especially to keep the book industry going during pandemic. And also um, it gave me the opportunity to kind of learn more about the formula. You know, I, I read this wonderful quick book, um, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but it's a wonderful book that just, uh, oh, Romancing the Beat. Romancing the Beats. Gwen yes. Hayes, I think. Or yes, yes, yeah. yes. And so, um, you know, just learning that there is a formula. There are expectations that readers have. If you're going to step into the romance pool, um, you must not violate them. Um, and so all of that really, that that transition into really enjoying and appreciating and loving romance and the romance industry happened during the pandemic. And ever since then, I've been hooked. And, um, you know, with all of those um, events, ended up buying books at almost every event. So like the top of my nightstand and my dresser, um, my bedroom is piled with pandemic book purchases, some of which, most of which are still to be read. But, you know, I think it's important for us as authors, as podcast listeners, as writers, you know, to support each other and to purchase, even if you don't get a chance to read or listen to it, you know, on, on audiobook. I, to me, it's so important to support um, authors with our purchases. Um, because everyone needs it and we're all each other's cheerleaders or at least we should be and um to me that's really important so so at what point okay so 
all of this is just fantastic. Like, so you were, you, your book was nominated. I believe like you believe, like if it had had that like romance formula, you were going to win. Was that when you, like, when did you realize like that's the, the path you want your characters to take? You want it to be a happy ever after. It's so weird. Cause it's like, well, what did they consider your books before? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know, but you know, I, I think the transition happened when I, um, switched over to um, Bold Strokes Books, which is where I am right now. Bold Strokes Books is a, is a mid-sized publisher based in um, New York area. And um, they focus primarily on um, LGBTQIA plus um, literature. And so it's wonderfully supportive. You know, it, it feels like you're part of like a, it feels like you're part of like a writer's group because all the authors support each other. You know, we support each other's events, you know, really personable, you know, editing and cover selections and choices and things like that. And I think it was my transition to Bold Strokes Books and with my first novel with them, Play It Forward, where um, I really, you know, it just cemented in me, happy ending romance. You know, people want that journey of people who are not, who maybe not supposed to be together, but they end up together. And um, so my first novel with Bold Strokes Books, Play It Forward, focuses on um, a professional basketball player and a community activist who's running this organization in LA that's like serving, you know, um, you know, gay homeless youth. Again, two opposites who never will probably have ever met, but um, the main characters um, come together because of a speech that the basketball player gave for the um, organization. And, um, you know, it was love at first sight from there and the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of these two Black men um, trying to find each other and and become one with each other and everything. And so, yeah, it was a transition of Bold Strokes books that really cemented in me that the path I want to go on is, you know, the the tradition of romance novels, romance writing, um, and things like that. It feels like it feels like we're in a, this moment where romance readers are craving. LGBTQ plus like romance novels more than ever. But then I also feel like they've always been around, you know, yeah. Like, as a writer, how do you feel? Like, does it feel like it's having a moment? Does it feel like they've, you know, these novels have always been around. People have always wanted to read it. Like, what does it feel like for you? Cause I do feel like, like traditional wise, I feel like we are seeing more than, I haven't been reading romance that long, but I feel like I do see them more on the shelf at like a Barnes and Noble than I would uh, have a couple of years ago. Like, how do you feel? Yeah. So another great question. And, you know, I was just talking about this with um, a writer friend this weekend and, um, you know, we were talking about, you know, well, actually she, she kind of posed the same question to me, like, like Fred, you have this backlist with these, you know, five novels and you've been doing this for a minute. And, um, you know, like, what do you think about, you know, like all the hype that goes to the brand new authors that get, you know, hyped and placed front and center at, at you know, Barnes and Noble or on the websites or the book talk people and things like that. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I, I would never take away from anyone's success or, or, or speak down to people's, you know, success or the support they get, you know, for being a debut or a new, you know, author and things like that. I think that's wonderful. And at the same time, I also want to, you know, make sure that people know that there are authors who have been doing contemporary 
LGBTQ literature, writing about black and brown characters for a while. Like I, I grew up with writers like Rashid Darden and um, Brian Banks and Fiona Zed, you know, who were doing this same kind of work, same path as me um, and everything. And at the same time, I also love the fact that that more um, LGBTQ novels and romance is like, I, I guess, mainstream. I don't know if mainstream is the word because our books are still being banned in a lot of places and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, I love the fact that there's so much love and attention and promotion of um, new authors um, to the game. And I also would like to see the same kind of support happen to people who are, you know, who, who, who have been doing this work all along as well. So how did you find, how did, how did these authors and their books, because, you know, a lot of times, like, I know when I first um, started reading romance, uh-huh. it took me, I mean, I it took me a minute this is like the beginning of me getting a library card and getting on overdrive and all of that. Like you hear so many stories of like people saying like they didn't see themselves. Like the first time I saw a black heroine on the cover of a book was Alyssa Cole. And I was like, what is this? You know? Um, So in your, for anybody that's listening who may be like, Oh my gosh, he writes these books. He grew up reading these authors and they may not see it. How did you find these authors in these books? <laughs> the very first one was Elon Harris. Uh-huh. And um, it's so funny. Like my friends and I, who are readers, talk a lot about how we used to, we had to sneak them and read them because, you know, of the, the taboos of being seen with, you know, a book by, for, or about, you know, um, Black and gay characters. So, you know, we we snuck and read them, you know, in our youth and things like that. Do you um, think so- it helped, too, like, growing up in, in Detroit, like, in a predominantly Black city? Like, I, I went to high school. I lived in Memphis. And okay. we had an entire bookstore for urban lit. Like, that's what it was called at the time. And I loved it. <laughs> uh-huh. Absolutely. You know, like, like, going to Black bookstores has always been a staple a hobby, very important to me, both in terms of supporting the bookstores, supporting the authors who they promote, but they also helped me discover people who I never knew about. Mm-hmm. And so it was actually going to black bookstores where I, you know, first saw or learned about people like Elin Harris, or there's this author named Jay California Cooper who writes the best short stories and novels um, of all time, in my opinion. Um, no, I wouldn't say of all time, but they're very great. Um, but yeah, going to black bookstores where I could see myself, where the salespeople really had a passion for and care about um, black authors and about matching people to books that they think that they would like. And I love that. With. Yeah. Um, like, like that's almost like, I mean, not to get religious, that's like doing the Lord's work. When it you is. Can, okay. Can <laughs> a book that's going to change their life or help them see a different part of themselves. Like that is just magic. And um, a bookseller who knows what you need, like is just top tier. Like, obviously they've read the book. They've spent Mm -hmm. some time getting to know you and they're like, I got you. Like, that's the best. Exactly. And, you know, a a quick tangent story. That's how I discovered this author. I just told you about Jay California Cooper. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of her before. And and she's unfortunately she's passed a few years ago, but writes these wonderful, kind of folksy, everyday language kind of novels, first person, um, about 
old black people living in the South. And some might 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 uh, center um, being enslaved. Many do not. But just some of the best lyrical writing I've ever ever read. And um, if it wasn't for going to a black bookstore, I never would have discovered J. California Cooper. And um, so I have all of our short story collections, all of our novels. Um, the other day, uh, I was listening to another podcast, which had a um, posthumous interview with her, with her talking in our everyday language. And so again, this just speaks to the power of um, bookstores, Black booksellers, librarians, getting to know the people who come to them and, and really understanding and knowing and also taking a chance on writers who who, who go beyond the, you know, the centerpiece at the BNN or the centerpiece on the on the book talk, you know, tours and everything. Um, people who are willing to take a deep dive. My heart goes out to them. Well, what what is something that you feel publishers, publishing could do right now to better inclusion and representation in fiction? Or is it, do we as bloggers and book reviewers, do we need to scream even louder that like, we want more of this? Like, what do, what do you think it is? Yeah, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. So okay. while I while I do appreciate, you know, the fact that, you know, for many publishers, they, they definitely push what they um, feel is important, what they feel is going to sell, what they feel, you know, is the it book at the moment and things like that. Love it, value it. It's very important because it pulls people in um, to the genre in general. And I also think it's important for booksellers, readers, book talk people, bloggers to take a deeper dive, whether it's with the people who are recommending books, books to them or even within themselves, just say, who am I not reading? That takes a lot of work. And I know sometimes people don't have the time to do the work to figure out who do I not know? You know, who are who are writers of community X, Y, Z? You know, who are some of the Native American writers I need to know about? Who are some of the Black or Latinx and queer authors that I need to know about who I'm just not learning about? Um, and even just going as as, you know, of course, you know, Google is easy and free. So there's no excuse not to go on Google and say Black queer authors. Yeah. Black queer romance, Latinx queer romance, and just to see what comes up. Um, you know, I, I think that's the easy work. And then the hard work is making the commitment to say, you know what, at least one of my reads per month is going to be from a community or by an author of a community that I'm not necessarily a part of. Um, I think that that is the important work that we all can do um, to make sure that we're, we're, we're putting a shine and a light on the, the diversity of writers and experiences that are out there um, and everything. So those are my initial thoughts. Yeah. It's almost like, it, this, and this sounds really weird saying it, but dare to be different. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of these spaces, it's the same books recommended Hello. in a thousand different ways. And it's like, come on, be that person that talks about <laughs> something that the rest of the girls are talking about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think it's so funny, you know, a, a lot, like on, on Instagram, for example, you know, I follow a lot of book people because I just like seeing what they're reading and stuff. And I'm like, wow. Like when I flip through the stories and things like that, it's like you, you, you can like, like clockwork, see the same five books on people's um, stories and web pages and, and TikToks and everything. And it's like, okay, I know we have the capacity to be 
more expansive than these five books. So why aren't we doing it? And that's the kind of work we need to do. And I think that ties into, you know, as you joked earlier about me always being in school, I think that I think that has just always been a part of me. Mm-hmm. I'm all, I've always been curious about what I don't know. And I think that also feeds into my reading and my book buying habits too, is who do I not know? Who am I not reading? And it's important for me to know that, um, you know, and, and kind of go beyond the surface and below the surface and everything. So. so tell me, like working in the higher ed space, I would just love to like, have you had a moment or I'm sure you've had hundreds of moments, but like that moment where you were like, I'm supposed to be here, you know, have you had one of those? I'm supposed to be in higher ed or I'm supposed to be in both worlds. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know, like maybe you had a conversation with a student and you thought it was just like, you know, oh. I'm just doing my job. And then, you know, months later, it's like, hey, like that talk we had that day really resonated with me. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, you know, and I think, that, again, that that's why. So I grew up loving and respecting teachers both my parents expected it, my grandparents expected it. And so I just love teachers. Maybe that's why I'm in this field. Mm-hmm. And so what's really interesting is that, um, you know, like you never, so this is what I say. We all have the uh, capacity to be a role model to someone, whether we're doing it actively or even passively. None of us knows who's watching us, listening to us, um, learning from what we do and say, and I'm, you know, and I'm sure that people who are parents know this or are thinking about this every day with their families. Like there are young people watching me all the time. And so mm-hmm. what I do matters and we all have that capacity in our lives, no matter what we're doing. And so, yeah, there, there's many times, you know, I, I hear from former students who are like, Fred, you're like, well, what I hear a lot is Fred, you're, you're, you're the first black professional and education I've ever had or known. I'm like, really? But I can, then I have to keep remembering I'm in California. Population Black people is probably five, 6% here, if that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like sometimes that takes me by surprise, the fact that someone has been watching me and listening to me or you know, someone will say, oh yeah, I learned how to do this event because of how I watched you plan events. Or I learned how to write an email properly because of modeling what you did. Or, you know, I learned a lot about my job search because of, you know, listening to you and taking your advice and things like that. Or I learned that I can have two careers. I can do my day job, what I really want to do. And at night I can do my creativity because you're showing me that it's possible by doing the work you do, you know, at this university and and writing novels and everything. And so, you know, I, I think the lesson here for everyone is that um we all can be role models. People are always watching and listening and learning from us. And so, again, it goes back to that Denise Hamilton, Carrie Madden story that I told you earlier. It just pays to be kind yeah. and helpful and, you know, giving of yourself and while also setting up boundaries and, you know, like sharing everything that you have that you can because, you know, we're, it's it, 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 it's the universes anyway. I don't know. That's how I kind of look at life and things and everything. So yeah, I have you know. And and speaking of former students, um, there's one um, who I've begun co-writing novels with. His name is Chaz Cruz, and um, you know we met when I was working at Cal State LA, um, and he came along as a student. He's since then graduated. He's actually in has been in the field of higher ed, doing similar work as me. Um, but about five years ago. I approached them 
So Boltzroth Books approached me. I took a little hiatus to go to a doctoral program. Look at me being in school and everything. <laughs> on and brand so, for you. Very uh, on brand. To, um, I was like, you know what? I think I want to do a, a, I think I want to get a doctorate. So I went to Loyola Marymount, got a doctorate in educational leadership for social justice. So took a break from, from professional novel writing for about three, four years. But as soon as I got that degree, Boltzroth Books was knocking on my email saying, um, would you like to write another novel? We need another novel from you. And so it was at that time, I thought Chaz and I were working together professionally at Cal State LA. And as soon as I got the email, I was like, Chaz, I got this email from Boltzroth Books. They want another novel. And I turned to go and I go, because Chaz had always had an aspiration. Chaz was a wonderful poet, spoken word artist and things like that. And I was like, Let's co-write together. You know, and I thought, one, it would give him a publishing cred with a major publisher. And two, just the the experience of learning from me in terms of writing a novel and then actually doing it. So that's how we got into the co-writing piece and uh, uh, the co-writing act of doing um, our novels, In Case You Forgot and Busy Ain't the Half of It. And um, I love your titles. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a title nerd. I love a good title. (laughs) uh, Thank you. Thank you. And so, um, you know, that was a wonderful experience to co-write with someone, first of all, for secondly, for it to be someone who, you know, has totally become part of my inner circle, one of my closest friends, personally and professionally, and someone whose creativity and, um, you know, aesthetic, I totally vibed with. And so we were great co-writing partners together on those two novels. Um, in fact, you know, now that I'm writing a solo novel in the third person, which I think I'm going back to first person on, um, in co-writing together, it was like automatic motivation mm-hmm. um, because I didn't want to let him down. He didn't want to let first, me down. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, we would work together at the, um, there was a main library in West Hollywood, California. That's the gay neighborhood in LA area. And they have this beautiful library. We would just go to it on weekends, run out one of the study rooms that overlooked, you know, the hills and the mountains and everything. And we would just write together on our, um, on our um, shared dock and everything. Beautiful process. Um, it really um, pushed me to be a, not only a better writer, but a more organized writer. And especially on our second co-written novel together, Busy Ain't the Half of It, because at that point, that's when I made the transition from Los Angeles to San Francisco to a much uh, higher level um, professional position at San Francisco State. And so my time was very limited. And so Chaz was like, Fred, we're going to get out that, 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 that formula. We're going to put up some post-it notes. We're going to know which, who's going what chapter. We're going to write the formula. We're going to get this done because I know that you have limited time, Fred. And so um, Chaz was Chaz is a wonderful accountability partner, a great creative and, um, you know, someone whose work I love. You know, right now he's transitioning into writing uh, for television now and writing pilots and web series and things like that. And um, Chaz Cruz is a wonderful um, creative. And, We're rooting uh, for you, Chaz. We are rooting for Chaz, <laughs> yes. I mean, so when you, okay, because y'all, the first one, so y'all were writing together. Yes. Was we it like you take a chapter, I take a chapter? Like, yeah. Okay. So, our, so our, our, our formula was this, you know, both of our novels are told from the perspective of two different characters. And so we decided who would be lead on which character. Okay. And so 
that helped out in terms of, you know, and for the most part, we followed the every other chapter was one of the main characters. And so, you know, we were good with writing our solo if it was just that character. But when they had to interact with each other, that's when we would really, truly have to sit down. And, you know, Chaz would be like, oh, this person wouldn't talk like this. Or, you know, they would say this to each other. And so, you know, it was a very collaborative process. Um, and it was it was nice for us both to take a lead on a lead character. Mm, Instead okay. of us both trying to write for both characters and everything. And so I think that that, you know, you spoke about, you asked about voice earlier. I think that helped in terms of defining the two voices of main characters. And um, it also helped just in terms of organization as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's do some like some round out questions. Some okay. of them you've seen, some you may not. <laughs> but yeah, I told you. <laughs> And, and you know what? Those questions are on my other laptop, so you're going to be totally spontaneous. Okay, good. That's even better. Okay. Okay. Tell me something that you find yourself nostalgic for. You know what? I'm really nostalgic for, this is going to sound so cheesy, and I'm nostalgic for my parents. You know, I, I lost both my parents recently, and so now it's just me and my sister. And, you know, I think a lot about our childhood. I think a lot about you know, like lessons learned um, from my parents. Um, they were wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. And um, so I think a lot about them and what they try to instill instill in my sister and me. And, you know, just really hoping that we're fulfilling, you know, their dreams and hopes um, and everything. So I'm nostalgic for that. Um, I'm nostalgic also for ice cream trucks and um, those hot summer days in Detroit and running down the street with a dollar trying to get an ice cream truck. They don't have ice cream cream. trucks where you are? No. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I I, I never saw one in Los Angeles, and I definitely have never seen one. What is going on in California? I don't know. I mean, maybe there are. I just haven't. Maybe I just haven't lived in neighborhoods that have. You know, because in California, I've been apartment living, not home living. So maybe it's different in residential neighborhoods. Well, um, if you come across one, I need to be tagged right. in a photo of you in front of the ice cream well, truck. Well, what I'll tell you, they do have out here are some really good um, food trucks and some really good, like after going out to the clubs, some really good hot dog carts and some really good, uh, I guess they call them elotes. Those are the corns. Mm. Oh, My sister most- loves a street corn. Yes. <laughs> street vendors. yes, 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 yes. So, um, I mean, I guess this is kind of, I'll just throw this one in there too. Like, do you... The vibes from San Francisco versus LA. Do you love oh. it more or what? Like, Ooh. are they totally different? Ooh, that's the million dollar question. It'll get me in trouble if I say what I really think. <laughs> but what I will say is, um, you know, you know, because I spent 10, 12, 15 years in um, Los Angeles. So that almost feels like home to me. I have so many great friends and memories and lovers, mm. and ass lovers and, and all that kind of stuff in LA. Um, San Francisco was definitely a culture shock for me. One, because of the weather. Note to listeners, San Francisco is a cold city. Okay, so I was you, wondering. I was like, what? what's the weather like? Okay, it's cold there. Probably always like in the 50s or 60s. Rarely really? 70 or 80. It's very rare to get a 70 or 80 degree day here. Interesting. Okay. Um, LA is perpetually sunny and warm. That's one of the first differences I noticed. I was like, oh, wow, I get to wear fall clothes all year round. So that's a plus here. It's aesthetically beautiful in San Francisco. Um, Public transportation is very easy. It's a very walkable city. 
Los Angeles, you can get in your car and drive as far as you want, as fast as you want, and things like that. And I like that about LA. And LA just has a lot of connections for me. Okay. Okay. All right. So if you decided you wanted takeout, where are you ordering from and what's your order? <laughs> I'm thinking about takeout right now. Um, <laughs> I love um, Chinese food. I love to order takeout Chinese food. Um, and I order, and I like ordering, although my friends and I debate about the quality, I like takeout sushi too, mm-hmm. if I don't have time to go to a restaurant. Okay. Okay. Tell me one TV show or film that you'll never stop watching. There was a series that I binge. It only has two seasons out. It's called Blood and Water. It's on Netflix. It's a high school drama set in South Africa, and it's beautifully shot. The drama is high stakes and lies. There are three seasons. The third season, I just binged about a month ago, and it is such a wonderful show, Blood and Water. And... um. I'm looking for more. I, I I can watch that show all day, every day. And then, like I joked earlier, you know, why I came to LA to try to write for the Young and the Restless and Bold and Beautiful. Yes, you, know, you did. <laughs> habits I got into because of my grandma. But um, you know, um, yeah, Young and the Restless, Bold and Beautiful. I can Look, keep I'm up. still shocked that Victor is still Tell on me that show. Victoring. <laughs> oh, and I have to also say Abbott Elementary. Oh God, yes. That. I can watch that all day, every day, and never get tired of it and get something new out of every episode. Yes. I, I watched the the episode. So I'm a really slow TV watcher. So I think I'm on season one still. And okay. like, I I love Ava and I can't stand Ava at the same time. <laughs> and I just finished the episode. It was the Step Show episode. And I was like, yes, please yes. tell me she didn't just ghost these girls. And then I was like, oh, okay. My heart goes out to her. Yes. <laughs> I know, I know. I can't wait till you get to season two. Oh, I, yeah, I just and, and Gregory is a genius character. He had this scene with pizza, and I'm like, how do you guys not know that this is Gregory's kind of identity here? <laughs> exactly, and and the way those eyes, those eyes communicate so much. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So tell me. Just off the top of your head, okay, you have the mixtape to your life. What are the top three songs that would be on it and what they say about you? Okay. Okay. I love the song. This is going to go old school. Make It Happen by Mariah Carey. Oh, yeah. It's on her second album. It might be on her first. But it's just an inspirational song about just about just coming out of struggle and making it as a songwriter. And so I see that song as being very autobiographical about her. And I loved her um, book about her life, by the way. And so I would say Make It Happen by Mariah Carey. I also love the grandness of um, Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Diana Ross. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about old school. I just love that big orchestra in the beginning and the way that she just talks the words instead of singing them until the very end of the crescendo. When she so, starts belting out Ain't yeah. no, like, oh my gosh, I still get chills. <laughs> Absolutely. And then um, let's do something kind of current day, like Song of My Life. They, like they, there's this um, there's this singer named Cleo Soul, who's from uh, Britain, I think, like Black, Black British Soul. Um, I would say anything by Cleo Soul, Anita Baker, Whitney Houston. Um, there is, yeah, the, those are some of the people that would be on my mixtape of my life. Okay, tell me one of your last unputdownable reads. 
my last unput Donna will read. Oh my goodness. Okay. There's this book uh, called Boys Come First by Aaron K. Foley. Mm-hmm. And it's put and it's and I, I I could not put it down. I actually blurbed it. Um, it is a novel about three gay best three black gay best friends in Detroit, and the author is from Detroit now living in New York City. And um, wonderful book um, brings back so many childhood memories of growing up in Detroit. Um, and then of course you know the the. the Three best friends again, looking for love in all the wrong places. It reminds me a lot of kind of the, you know, what inspired me to write down for whatever um, back when I first wrote that. But "Boys Come First by Aaron K. Foley. Mm-hmm. What is something that anytime it ha- just brings you joy? Anytime it happens, brings <laughs> you joy. Um, I have to say, happy hour whenever <laughs> work is done. I love- uh, yeah, it brings me joy. I, ha- I have a so I have to admit, like w- one of my best group of friends. One day, I was walking randomly down Market Street in the Castro District here in San Francisco. That's the gay neighborhood in San Francisco. And I walked past this bar, and I see a black bartender. And I was like, "Oh, that's very rare. You never see a black bartender in Castro." So I walked right in and introduced myself. His name is Jonathan, and now he's one of my best friends. And what's really cool about Jonathan is that you know he knows a lot of the servers and bartenders in the area. They've become friends. But you know, each bartender has like their own following, so we're almost like community. And we go wherever Jonathan is working, um, whatever his nights are. You know, of course, I can't go four nights a week, but, you know, I can go Mondays and Thursdays to happy hour where Jonathan is working. And so we always have the best time um, with the community that Jonathan has created. And so you I look are living to- like romance main character dream life here. <laughs> I love I that. Except there's never enough time. And, you know, I have to write at like four in the morning before my day job starts. And so I just wish there was more time. And I wish I had more energy after work to write. Um, But, you know, the time comes at like four in the morning. I can do a couple hours until about 630 when I have to start getting ready for my day job. Okay. Okay. I I meant to ask, like, how do you balance work life and writing life. So morning, is it for you? I'm a morning person too. I get a lot yeah. of done before six o'clock a.m. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because, you know, I, I, I joke and call it the quiet hours because in general, there's no emails coming. It's there's so no peaceful. Hours, except the only thing is, you know, living on the West Coast, I'm still part of my Detroit and East Coast families, uh, family chat on text. And so they start text texting around 7.30 their time, <laughs> it's 4.30 my time. And so, but you know what? I am not leaving that group chat because that's what keeps me connected to my family. So yeah. I don't care that the texts come in, you know, while I'm doing my writing. Um, but yeah, that's my best time, the morning hours. And then of course, on the weekends, I, I spend a, a significant amount of time after I've done my chores, you know, groceries, laundry, cleaning, um, doing my writing then. Well, you, you, you've shared that the, your current work in progress, you know, you're going to go back and rewrite it in first person, which I feel like you should do. Can you tell us anything about the book? (laughs) So it's, um, it's tentatively titled one and done and, um, you know, it's a romance. It's, um, you know, let's, let's just use that old cliche two people meet in a bar at a Sunday. And And is uh, Jonathan the bartender? And it might be. Yeah, I hope Jonathan's the bartender. I feel like we're friends it now. Might be. Yes. Oh my gosh. I can't wait. Y'all, y'all have to come to San Francisco and 
and come to some of the places. I need to come out there so that, you know, you can take me to happy hour. Yes. You just tell Jonathan to make me something sweet. I don't know what to order. I, okay. I'm here. <laughs> He's a wonderful mixologist. And so, yeah, so so One and Done is about, you know, two random people meet in a bar um, at a Sunday fun day. But it turns out that they did not know that they um, are working on a um, professional project together because of work. One's a tourist, a consultant. One works at a company um, in the city and they don't realize, you know, even though they kind of did not like each other in the first bar interaction, they end up having to work together on this project. And then the shenanigans continue from there. Well, I can't wait. So you're turning that in. I'm turning that in in July. In July. Okay. Supposed to be out at some point in either late spring or early summer 2024. So, of course, you know, I'd be happy to come back and talk then. Please too. do. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, please plug all the places where people should be keeping up with you online. I mean, your Instagram, your photos are gorgeous. So, oh, plug uh, all the places. <laughs> stop. <laughs> That's so, why I was like, I need you in front of an ice cream truck. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and create a very salacious author photograph. <laughs> anyway, um, so my Instagram and Twitter are the same. It's the letter F Smith 827. Um, and you can find me there or just look up Frederick Smith author and you can find me anywhere. Um, and fredericksmith.com is my website that connects to all my social media as well. Okay. Well, I will have links to all the places where everyone can keep up with you online. Please come back. You're writing a book. We need to talk about it. I mean, you can come back and talk about whatever, okay? If we, if there's a show you want us to watch to to talk about it, you just tell me and I'll watch it, okay? Yeah, <laughs> I just want to tell you how much I love your podcast. You know, I I've been listening for a while. I love learning from all the authors you have on and the conversations you have. I really loved um, the 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 um, the Brazilian author you had on a few weeks ago. I'm Yay! like. You know, I need to be friends. Yes, right. I'm like, you need to come to the States. He needs to get his visa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got to get him to the States so we can um, buy books and talk books and Yay. things like that.